Hello and welcome to Harness Your Hopes. In this series, six West of Ireland writers have written a new short story on the theme of harnessing hope. They're going to read it and then I'll have a chat with them about their craft and how the theme inspired them. My name is Uwudini Ola Mustafa, and um, I'm popularly known as Ola. And the title of this story is A Road Often Traveled. And it chronicles the journey of um, of a girl who was hopeful and in search of greener pastures, uh, relocating from Nigeria abroad. And the story turned out not to be what she envisaged. Thank you for listening. At only six, Fulu dreamt of traveling the world and wouldn't stop talking about it at the family dinner time or long before that in the day. Whenever she saw an airplane while she was out playing with friends, squealing and giggling on the strip of sand beside their house, the first daughter of her parents, with three younger siblings, already by her fifth birthday, her parents seemed to prefer the idea of a large family, even when they could barely afford to put three decent meals on the table for all. Despite the humble background, however, Fulu never felt unloved or neglected and would much later in life wonder how her parents managed to love all four of their children with such devotion and selflessness. Family dinner time was her fondest memory, and although they couldn't afford the space for a dining table, nothing felt better than the minutes the family would spend together eating from the same bowl in that one poorly lit living room. And then a small bedroom, which was meant for mom and dad and Tiwa, who was just about four months old at the time Folu's dad got the family's first color TV, a fairly used one, which called for celebration in the entire decrepit tenement building that was their home. The Adewale family was a revered one at the time in the town of Shaki, Oyo state of Nigeria. Not for the wealth, which they lacked significantly, but for the quietitude and genuine concern with which they related with the neighbors. Mr. Femi Adewale fondly called Baba Fulu, Fulu's father, by neighbors, as is the custom in Yoruba land, to address parents by the name of their first child, was a man of honor and discipline. He was the first one out early in the morning to work, quite before dawn, and to be back home by 6.30 p.m. to the loving arms of his wife, Sarah. Mama Fulu was as easygoing as her husband, if not more. She conducted her business quietly, selling the gari that her husband made in a small factory at the edge of town. Unlike her husband, Mama Fulu didn't have to go far for her business, as her stall was situated in a small market just down the street. This way, she could take good care of the kids and manage the home, with Folu already assisting with whatever errands her little hands could manage at the stall. Folu already knew the measurements, and the mother's stall was often one of the busiest and most patronized, because Mama Folu's gari was one of the finest and purest. Her customers would swear that hers was made from the best stock of cassava and prepared such that it retained most of the soreness that defined what native consumers knew as the hallmark of premium Ijebu gari, a staple among Yoruba people of southwest Nigeria, which is made from fermented cassava in practiced steps that are firmly etched in tradition. By her tenth birthday, Folu could make gari even though her mother wouldn't allow it often. And if at all, only with the strictest supervision a loving mother could provide. 
Twice, Mama Folu had an accident with her left, right hand scared permanently. And the most recent saw the big, hot cauldron of nearly done Gary miss Folu's small and tender legs by a few inches close to the mud stove as Mama Folu tripped it over. By her 14th birthday, however, Folu needed no strict supervision and would oftentimes accompany her dad to his factory to bring some cassava home ever since her mom started assisting with the production from the backyard of their tenement home to meet rising demand. Suffice to say that the family business thrived until Baba Folu could use could buy a used station wagon, which was of immense benefit to the business. For the fact that all lands were indeed on deck for the family business, Baba Folu ensured that Folu never took her studies lightly. Folu attended the community secondary school and was on her way to conclude her secondary education in flying colors. Baba Folu was so serious about education that he would instruct Folu to read one storybook at a month at least. He would make sure he brought out one new storybook along whenever he went to the town. This way, Folu always had something to read. And when she wasn't reading a prescribed school text or doing her homework, she was reading a storybook. Likewise, Baba Folu would always ask if she had done her homework or how far she had done reading whatever storybook was up for the month. It was through these storybooks that Folu's desire to travel the world would further strengthen, and by the time she concluded her secondary education at 15, she was convinced that she was meant to travel the world and possibly leave Nigeria for good. As fate would have it, Fulu's reading habits made her interested in other forms of literature as well. One of such was the newspaper, where she read of the ongoings in the political space and buttressed with her dad's constant talk about the state of affairs. Folu already had a fair idea of what her parents shielded their children from. The harsh realities of the Nigerian economy made worse by the tumultuous political system. For instance, she remembered vividly how her parents discussed the death of Chief M.K.O. Abiola, a Yoruba billionaire who died in the custody as a political prisoner for daring to contest and win an election in a military regime. In an attempt to bring Nigeria back to civilian rule, this was in 1998, a year before Nigeria would eventually experience its second transition to civilian rule since independence from the British. Folu was in her teens before she could appreciate how much her parents protected her from the harsh realities most Nigerian adults faced. The first civilian rule in her lifetime, as led by President Olusegun Obasanjo, was filled with hopes for the average Nigerian. However, it seemed the urgency to bring Nigeria back on track was quickly lost on the ruling class as they over-celebrated the milestone, it seemed, and lost touch with the reality that the country had lost several years of development, even as a teenager. Folu could sense this grim reality. At 16, while she waited to gain admission to the university, she had gained real interest in the Nigerian political space. In the meantime, however, she needed to conclude her university education, and although preferring to study in the United Kingdom, she firmly understood that her parents couldn't afford the cost. As for her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Adewale, they had grown the family gari business to include an additional thriving small factory, 10 employees, one truck, and a motorcycle. The progress was encouraging and modest, but Baba Folu had three other mouths to feed with the modest income. Crucially, Tiwa, her youngest sibling, had a congenital heart disease that somehow didn't show up until she was three and managing it had dipped into the family finance over the years, forcing Folu to become a primary school teacher immediately after her secondary school education.
such that she could at least augment the family income. Besides, the community could use a brilliant teenage teacher, and it also helped that she had become a role model to other teens and children in the small town. Unfortunately, Folu quickly had grew at small town as she sought to maximize her potential and frankly move on with her life. It's the blessing of smartness, a heightened self-awareness that convinces a person of the existence of a world beyond immediate experience. Apparently, reading a lot had paid off and Folu had appearance to thank for the push. By 2007, Folu had sat the jump qualifying examinations thrice, failing all attempts to meet the cut-off mark to study civil law, despite her brilliance. It is common knowledge in Nigeria that bright students sometimes get unlucky with this particular examination. However, Folu had used the study gap to learn fashion designing and had begun selling ready-to-wear female Ankara clothing. She met Madame Clara in the course of her promising trade. By this time, Folu had relocated to Lagos City, Nigeria's commercial hub and the most urban hub, as would many Nigerian youths from up-country states. Clara was a middle-aged woman who seemed to juggle several businesses all at once. She was quite generous as well, liked to follow a lot, and would always refer her services to family and friends. As a matter of fact, Madame Clara was Folu's biggest customer. Often, when Folu would thank her profusely for yet another juicy referral, Madame Clara would say, Come on, I was, like a, I was a girl like you, and I know what it means to fend for oneself as a pretty young lady. Clara seemed easygoing as well, and had a certain cuteness to her nonchalance and the stride with which she took obstacles and objections in her line of work. Folu was quickly convinced within a year of meeting her that she had a lot to learn from Madame Clara, who travelled overseas often for business and sometimes pleasure. She was a good storyteller as well, and Folu would listen endlessly to tales of how Madame Clara enjoyed this and that in Venice today, London tomorrow, and USA the next. All in all, there was something interesting about Madame Clara, and Folu could swear she knew everything about her. Or did she? The fact remained that Clara's exact line of business remained a mystery. She especially wanted to change the topic whenever Folu, in her teenage curiosity, would prod a little. Folu sat the jam examination for the fourth time, and this time around, the examination body claimed there was widespread malpractice at her center, and as a result, her examination was cancelled. Another year gone. On the way back home, Folu decided to stop by Madame Clara's house somewhere in Lagos Island to inform her as well. There is some advice for you, Clara said, after hearing Folu's story patiently. There are better opportunities for a girl as smart as you are outside this country. I've always thought of it, but as it is, I cannot afford to leave the country. I can barely fend for myself. I'm not even quite ready financially to study at a Nigerian university, let alone one in the UK, USA, or Canada, like a few friends I know, Folu replied. I'm not saying to study right away when you travel, Clara said. You could work for a few years and then enroll in a university when you think you're ready. It's what people like you do when they relocate. Folu had always loved the idea of visiting other countries, but never for once did she think it would someday be a decision to consider under duress. At this point, however, it didn't matter that she wasn't spoiled for choice as long as she could get a chance to further her studies in an environment she could consider conducive enough for learning. Folu's long conversation with Madame Clara did bear some fruit. For one, she knew 
why Clara traveled to Europe often. A former classmate helps people find jobs in Europe. We have a deal too, and that's why you see me travel often. Clara informed and offered to help Folu with the understanding that she would refund the cost of travel within a year without interest. However, Folu would have to sort out the aspect of her schooling by herself. After all, getting a job placement should make it easier for her to enroll in the university for a while. Folu was gladdened by the offer, so much that she agreed to it before telling her mother. Of course, Mama Folu was quite concerned. What mother wouldn't be? Her first daughter out in a foreign land all by herself. And who is Madame Clara? That she would have to entrust her daughter in her hands for a deal she has so many questions for. Folu also remembered reminding her mom that she was now over 20 years of age and was old enough to make this particular decision. Her dad, however, wasn't as worried and only advised, remember the road that took you to Europe and you can always retrace your steps. The years had since mellowed Folu's dad had the toll that Tiwa's terminal disease had taken on him. This was the other reason Folu was determined to seek greener pastures so she could afford to foot some of the mountain medical bills someday. By August 2011, two months into her 21st birthday, Folu was already ready to travel to Italy. By this time, she had spoken to Mrs. Odion, the friend Madame Clara talked about earlier. Several times, Mrs. Odion claimed she had secured a nursing job for her in Italy, and the deal was that Folu could remit 20% of her salary for the first six months as a finder's fee. Her last few days in Nigeria were as tedious as they were emotional. Folu had never set foot outside Nigeria all her life, and beyond that, she had never only known a family, a small circle of family and friends all her life. As a matter of fact, Folu's circle was so small and close-knit that her friends in Lagos, who helped her settle in when she moved down from Shaki, were the children of her parents' friends, except for Madame Clara, whom she met and became friends with in the course of selling Ankara. Also, Clara wasn't exactly a friend as she was much older. Folu left Nigeria in September of 2011. The flight from Lagos to Barcelona lasted over eight hours and gave too much time for butterflies in her stomach to leave her constipated. She had never experienced such a level of anxiety before then. Mrs. Odion had intimidated her that the modalities and, thankfully, would be available to pick her up from Barcelona airport, from where they had traveled to Florence by rail. She had wondered and asked Mrs. Odion why they couldn't fly straight to Italy from Lagos. It's our best option at the moment, for reasons I'll let you know in due course. Mrs. Odion had been quite jovial and accommodating, and Folu had no reason to suspect any foul play. Besides, Mrs. Odion came highly recommended by Clara. Although the flight to Barcelona lasted for what seemed like eternity, Folu was quickly mesmerized by the speed, efficiency, and professionalism with which Barcelona airport staff and immigration managed passengers. As for the beauty of the airport, it was a relative wonder compared to what she was used to back home in Nigeria. Strangely, Folu had already become homesick even before leaving the airport. The sudden change in environments had already become too much for someone who had never left Nigeria before and who needn't have to deal with strangers for the past 20 years of her life except for Clara. And then there was the language barrier, which thankfully Odion had eased by being a translator once she had passed immigration. Mrs. Odion had arrived at the airport 
in the company of one guy, a Spaniard, who introduced himself as Justo. She, she called him her assistant. Justo looked like he was in his 40s and spoke fluent English, albeit with this almost thick Spanish accent. And he rolled his R a lot more than the few Spaniards she had heard in the last few hours. All three in a waiting sedan that fitted Folu's three travel luggage easily. Odion had told Folu that she would get only two hours to cut some hair before they headed as they didn't have much time to spend. Traveling from Spain to Italy by rail was quite a sight to behold, and Folu was glad to have chosen the window seat from which she savoured the beauty of Europe and noticed how it seemed the grass was indeed greener on that side. He had read a bit about geography and how countries closer to, Sahara, to the Sahara seemed to have less lush vegetation and a lot of dust compared to European countries, which are farther from the desert and are temperate. This new face of African, in his 50s, he changed smoked as he rushed his words while speaking. His English, whenever he garnished it with, with Italian in the conversation with Odion and Justo, sounded Ghanaian and more exotic than the native Ghanaian accent Fulu knew, thanks to the Italian influence. The new man spoke Italian quite fluently, and then Folu realized Justo was quite fluent in Italian as well, likewise Odion, and Folu was the only one whose only European language was English, and which has only been useful at the Barcelona airport nearly 17 hours ago. After 15 minutes, Odion joined Folu on the wooden bench where she sat. That's what James, she informed. I have known him for 15 years now. Since I first got here, he will connect us with the work agent. Ma, but I thought you said you were a direct recruiter. Yes, I am. But this particular opening isn't a direct contact of mine. I figured it's the best option for you, Odion replied. In the distance, Folu caught curious glances from James and Justo as they spoke in whispers. She felt like they were talking about her. Let's get you down to the hotel, Odion caught in ending the conversation, and Folu's curiosity. Hotel La Passier was modest, a three-star hotel, and the cuisine was quite inviting. Folu was as exhausted as she was famished and quickly wolfed down some pasta before retiring for the day at 7.10 p.m. Her first night in Florence was a long one. Early the following morning, Odion, Justo, and James were at the lobby, waiting for her as she showered and dressed up in a black gown and a coat. Autumn has kicked in. For Folu, who had lived in the sweltering Nigerian weather all her life, this September in Florence was the coldest she had ever experienced. She was glad to have months to prepare for winter. At the lobby within 30 minutes of the trial's arrival, Folu was all set for a meeting with the work agent, whose office was about 20 minutes' drive from the hotel, as she was told. Sylvester's office was modest, he himself was, was a casually dressed Italian man in his 40s. He spoke more English than Italian and was quick to give his frequent travel to London as a reason. He also claimed to have a few Nigerian friends in Italy, some of whom he had helped with jobs. Sylvester was the work agent they, all, they had all came to meet. Tell me a little about yourself, he said to Folu, who recounted her experience growing in Nigeria and how she had come to Italy to work for a while and save up for university. 
There are many opportunities for you here, but you must work hard, Sylvester said. That meeting was seven years ago, and Folu had yet to enroll in university and was definitely not working the job Mrs. Odion and Madame Clara had promised her. She had since become a prostitute, against her will, and Mrs. Odium was the pimp who had connived with Madame Clara as frontrunners of a prostitution ring that lured unsuspecting Nigerian girls to Europe. Mr. Sylvester was a fact Folu's first client, and she has lost count of the number of men she had served in the dehumanizing profession that has since left her stranded in Italy and with her travel documents held in collateral by Odion. Trice had fully paid back all the travel expenses owed to Odion, yet she wasn't allowed to opt out, and she couldn't leave, leave Italy and was afraid of reporting the matter to the police due to the barrage of threats from Mrs. Odion, some of which she suspected were carried out on Cindy and Margaret, two of her feisty colleagues whom Mrs. Odion pimped. They had both disappeared without a trace. Folu had stopped calling home because she was, she was also tired of lying that she was in school and doing fine. It hurt her the most that she couldn't go home to attend her father's burial when he passed on two years earlier. And she would often remember his advice to her to never forget the road by which she came and could always retrace her steps. A decision she was now at liberty to take. Thank you for listening. Tell me, when did you start writing stories? I started writing stories about four or five years ago. Myself, I've been in the system for eight years now. I got my residency last year, December, but I'm still in direct provision. And sharing that space with fellow asylum seekers, you know, brought back this kind of reality that you never had it worst after all, you know. We all share these uh, commonalities, but... We didn't have that safe space to tell our own stories. We served as therapists to one another. And I would often come in contact with fellow asylum seekers who would say, maybe we should start getting these stories out here. Maybe we would make, we'll meet uh, Irish people who would be empathetic towards us and would you know, get involved with people who are in the system. And that was exactly what we did. And it gave rise to people collaborating with us and helping us to get our stories out there you know, coming up with um, events that brings people, Irish community, to people who have been marginalized and living in the reprovision. And the rest, they say, is history. And in the story, it has kind of elements of fiction, but sometimes it's almost like a case study. So how did you combine the two? Or is the story based on a real person? It is based on a real person. It's actually my friend's story. And um, it's not fiction. It is, it is a real uh, experience of, of um, somebody who passed through the deprivation system. And unfortunately, she had to choose between pressing charges against her traffickers or settling down in Ireland. And she chose to, you know, go into deprivation, seek asylum. And that would cost her eight years of her life. And I'm so thankful for her that she went through that process because she... She has not healed from the trauma of what she went through, 
but I'm thankful that she is in a better place now and doing well for herself. It's good to hear, yeah. I was going to ask you about the characters, about how long characters stay with you, but she's a real person, so maybe that doesn't apply. But in, in other stories that you've written, do you write a short story and you still think about the character as a person? I often write uh, short poems. Okay. And that would be my own personal experience. I would say I write narrative poems. And it is often triggered by maybe, um, say, for instance, a horrible experience with a center manager or somebody reaching out to say, oh, this happened in my hostel and this is how I was treated. And it just kind of triggers you as a person. I live in in a self-catering uh, uh, provision, which is fairly uh, good. I'm not going to say I have it better than other asylum seekers who live in hotel-styled accommodation. But they would often have it worse than those of us who have our own door kind of um, living spaces. So that would always be my motivation for writing whatever it is that I write. But they are quite relatable to real experiences of real people behind those words that I put on paper. And you kind of said at the start when you were introducing it about, you know, the, the theme of the program or the, the name of the program is Harness Your Hope. So, you know, where do you see the hope in the story? Um, the hope is I would like to encourage anyone going through this kind of situation or who has been through this kind of um, ugly path that, you know, there is always uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Folu is doing well now. As a matter of fact, she's about starting her own business. And I'm thankful that she got the help that she needed. She came out of that situation and fought the good fight. And, and I would also like to encourage the government as well not to criminalize such people, you know. They, they've been through a lot in their lives. They've had to make hard choices, you know. If they come out to, to tell their stories in the real light of how it happened, perhaps we would see how ugly it was in that, uh, in that um, state of their lives. And I would also like to liken it to people who uh, belong to the LGBTQ communities who have been told by the Irish government or the Department of Justice in the course of your interview that they, they don't look gay enough, they don't look lesbian enough. These are some of the reasons why people would rather stay in that kind of space and endure those kind of ugly situations rather than, you know, um, damn all the consequences and, and you know, risk what, what comes out of it, you know. Be hopeful and there are better days ahead. And what is next for you, Ola, like in terms of writing, in terms of anything artistic? Um, I'm in the process of publishing a book and um, it is titled Diary of an Asylum Seeker. And um, I hope to publish it maybe next year because at this moment I'm taking time off from, from writing and <laughs> focusing on transitioning from the reprovision to settled Irish community and have that feeling of being human again. And then maybe I would go back to, you know, doing what I like to do best, which is writing and, you know, expressing myself in, in words. So I uh, look out for my book and um, I hope it will shed more light into the reprovision system in Ireland and the impact that it has on people. And I would like to end it by saying, behind the walls of direct provision, there are real people. Behind those numbers that we are called in direct provision, 
like I said, in my own case, behind those 897 numbers, there are real people whose lives are impacted by whatever decision or policies that policymakers uh, make. And I would also like to encourage Irish people who would say, go back to where you came from, or there are other countries in the world where you can go to. We are here now, and we would uh, appreciate your empathy. And um, anyone can be a refugee at any time. You know, people move for several reasons. So be kind and um, show some uh, kindness to people who don't look like you out there. Okay, thanks very much. Harness Your Hopes was produced and presented by Alan Meany. Music was by Eamon Bailey. The writer on this episode was Ola Oadoni. The programme is supported by a Creative Ireland bursary from Galway County Council.